the Bible tells us the account of in the life of the prophet Elisha when he got himself on the wrong side of the king of Syria and the king wanted to have him captured and probably put to death. And so he sent out men after him to surround him in the place that Elisha was after he found him out. And Elisha's servant sees this happening. He sees a great army coming and surrounding them. And there's soldiers and there's chariots. And, and, and the servant is with Elisha, just the, this, these two men, the prophet and his servant. And the servant tells Elisha, and Elisha says, don't worry. There are more with us than are with them. And then he prays, Elisha prays, and he says, God, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes, and he's suddenly able to see that surrounded by them in the mountains are chariots of fire and an army of, of a vast number that they couldn't even count. One of the things that this story demonstrates is that there is more to our existence in this world than we often see with our eyes, than is often visible to us. That is that in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm, there are things going on that are beyond often our understanding or our apprehension, but they are nonetheless no less real than the things that we can see and touch on our, in our daily lives. That is that the spiritual realm is no less real and no less significant than the physical, natural realm in which we inhabit and which we interact with each day. This will help us to understand what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 6, where I'll start reading in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, and that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs 
and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. I would like us to best understand what Paul is saying here in verse 12 when he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. To understand the thinking that this comes from, the worldview from which he's writing these things inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have to have an understanding of the spiritual realm and the spiritual reality in which we live. One that, as I said before, is often invisible to us, but is relevant and pertinent to our lives every single moment, every single day. In fact, it is in some respects, it is more important even than the things that are seen, the things that are unseen. And so that's what I would like us to look at today and to understand, to help us to understand what spiritual warfare that we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are engaged in. And uh, so that we would have a worldview, our understanding of the world around us and the world that we live in that is shaped not just by our own understanding, but that is shaped by the Bible and what God reveals to us in his word, word. that we would have a biblical worldview, that we would see the world the way that God has revealed the world to us in the Bible. And to do that, we have to understand that there is spiritual reality that is revealed to us that we don't see with our eyes, but that God reveals in his word. This is not the first time Paul has used some of these terms and referred to some of these concepts. In the first chapter of Ephesians, and, and we've, we've been going through Ephesians when I've preached here for quite a while now, and we're coming to the end of it, but uh, we may have, uh, we have seen throughout many times where Paul refers to the reality of this world in similar terms. And he does so here in, in Ephesians chapter 1, when he speaks about the elevation of Christ to the pos- highest position of authority in heaven and in earth. And he speaks about this in relation to God's work of salvation in his people. God's work of salvation in his people is so powerful. It is so significant that it's nothing less than a raising up sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins, totally depraved, totally unable and unwilling to come to God, that it takes the resurrecting power of God to raise us from our spiritual death to life. And he speaks about that work of salvation and relates it to the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's spoken of here. He's, he prays for them in verse 17. That God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now what we're in Ephesians chapter 6, we're talking about spiritual warfare. And one of the things I hope you'll see that spiritual warfare, warring against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, is not something fundamentally different from the normal course of discipleship of the Lord Jesus in this life. And it's not something fundamentally different than what Paul is praying for here for the saints. That is, Paul is not introducing some entirely new concept out of left field, but what he's saying is in line with what the Bible's been teaching from Genesis all the way to Revelation. What he's saying is in line with these things. And what he's praying for us, the saints at Ephesus, and us by extension, that God would give us wisdom, that God would reveal himself, that we would know the kind of power that works in us, the power of God that works in you, and equips you and enables you to serve him in this world and to face all opposition of the devil and whatever else shall oppose you by the power of God. Because that very power of God is what has raised you up from unbelief to belief. That very power of God is what has raised you from spiritual deadness to life. And it's the power, it says, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So we see some of these same terms, principalities, powers. What's he talking about? He's not only talking about earthly authorities, but as we see in Ephesians 6, principalities and powers refer to spiritual entities as well, spiritual authorities. But what he's saying here in Ephesians 1 is not limited to one or the other. He's saying everything, every power, every authority, everyone in this world or in the world to come, Christ has authority over all things. God has set him up at the highest position of authority at his right hand, and his authority reigns over all things And the working out of his kingdom in this world is the living out of that authority manifesting as he changes the hearts and lives of his people in this world. Well, going on to Ephesians 2, we also see a reference to the spiritual realm. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So he refers to something. The prince of the power of the air. We have someone who is described as having authority. And someone whose authority is uh, described as being the power of the air. And it's that very spirit that works 
among the children of disobedience. We're going to come back to that verse a little bit later. Verse uh, 10 of chapter 3. When he speaks about what, what God has done in the church, he says in verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Principalities and powers in heavenly places. He's talking about angels, angelic beings. And he's saying that it is God's purpose that the church might be a means by which God's wisdom and purpose might be made known to even the angels, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, Neither give place to the devil. And so we see that Paul's mention of spiritual beings, of spiritual uh, warfare, is not new as we come to chapter 6. Well, this can be a challenging subject for us to wrap our minds around because we're dealing with something spiritual and heavenly and not, and not just earthly. But let's uh, just consider some of the basics that are taught to us in God's Word. Uh, first of all, We learn from the Bible that in addition to God creating earthly created beings like animals and people, God has also created rational beings that inhabit the heavenly realm. And we often see these referred to or we refer to these by the kind of umbrella term of angels. Angels speaks of Uh, the role and purpose for which God created beings. Angel means a messenger. And the angels are are God's messengers. But we often use it too in a very broad sense to refer to all of these uh, spiritual heavenly beings that God has created. God has even referred to himself in relation to this. One of the titles for God in the Bible is he's called the Lord of Hosts or Lord Sabaoth which means Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies, referring to how the Lord in heaven is surrounded by a great multitude, by a a heavenly army, the hosts of heaven that surround him and bring him glory and bring him praise. And when there's scenes, uh, visions that are given to us of insight into God and his throne, he's always surrounded by heavenly creatures that are honoring him and praising him and glorifying him. So we see that there are beings that God has created that are not earthly, but they're heavenly. And when man is created, one of the ways it's described, it says that God made him a little lower than the angels. That is that we are, we are inhabiting this plane of existence that in terms of excellency and glory, by its nature, is lower than the angels because we're in the earthly realm and they're inhabiting the heavenly realm. Some deny the existence of angels like the Sadducees did in Jesus' day. They didn't believe in angels or spirits or the resurrection. They were, in that sense, very materialistic in their view of the world. Perhaps it seemed too far-fetched for them that, that all these beings would exist that we can't see. But when you stop and think that the most important being in whom we believe, the uncreated God is, is spirit, and he is invisible to our natural eyes, and yet 
we believe that God is no less real. In fact, God is the, the, real, the realness of everything. If we believe in a God who created all things, who is spirit, then it is not difficult for us to believe that God created other spirit-like beings that are created. We also see reference, second, so, so principle one we see is that God created these beings, these angels. And then secondly, we see that there seems to be order or rank or variety among these beings. Uh, they're called principalities and powers, and there seems to be some kind of distinction. But not a lot is taught to us about these things, nor do we need to know, but, but we, we see enough that there is some kind of ranking. I mean, we saw how the devil in, in verse 2 of, of Ephesians, I mean, uh, Ephesians 2, is called the prince of the power of the air. In some places, the term the prince of devils is referred to. Or we hear terms like the archangels, and a term like archangel, uh, an angel who's, who's a, of a higher rank or authority than other angels, indicates that there's some kind of variation among these creatures. They're not necessarily all the same kind. And I said we're not taught a lot about this. The Bible doesn't lay this out for us because it's not necessary for us to peer into that and, and, and have to understand all that. But it's enough to know that it exists. And it's helpful for us in trying to wrap our mind around that to consider that in earthly existence among human beings, there's variety, there's different levels of authority, different levels of responsibility, different duties that different people have, and that they were created and given life to fulfill ultimately in the service of God. And so it shouldn't be that strange that among the angels, there's also this as well. These angels are, from what we see, they're rational, intelligent beings. Probably a lot more intelligent than, than we are, if, if, if I would imagine so. Um, and then that, but uh, a third principle we see is that some of these angelic beings have rebelled against their creator and operate on the side of evil. They operate opposed to God. It, it uses the phrase, the devil and his angels. The devil himself is our prime example of this. The devil, make no mistake, the devil is a created being, created like other beings. The devil didn't arise of his own will. He, he's not eternal. He doesn't exist independent or, or uh, apart from God's creation, but he is a limited, created being like you and me and like everything God has created. Uh, he is not an equal foe to God. He is a created, limited being, but one that has rebelled and, 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 and operates in opposition to God. And so when we understand these principles, it means that the spiritual struggle in which we are engaged in this life is not merely with the physical, material world, but it is also against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's what Paul says in, in uh, Ephesians 6, that ultimately our battle is not one that can be won 
with carnal weapons, but it is against spiritual wickedness. Fourth principle, the spiritual and the heavenly realm interact directly with the material realm. You cannot think of the heavenly and spiritual realm as completely separate and independent of us, but in fact, they are interacting always, and we are affected by the spiritual. That is demonstrated in Ephesians 2, which we read before. It says, In time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The devil has, has authority in the power of the air, somewhere between heaven and earth. He has some kind of dominion that he's operating. But that is not separate from the affairs and goings-on of our life. But it goes on, it says, The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So the evil acts, wills, and intentions of fallen human beings are influenced by and worked in by spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's not just about somebody else, but that's about all of us unless we are redeemed and saved and, and rescued from that spiritual influence by the grace of God, among whom, verse 3, also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And uh, it, it might help us to, to have a metaphor to think about how is it that the physical material world that we live in and the spiritual world are both operating in the same place at the same time. One of the analogies that popped into my mind was I was thinking about when you, when you look at a, a layered map, have you ever seen a layered map in some kind of software program where you can put different layers on that map. Maybe it's the geographical terrain, or maybe it's the roads that take you from this place to other, or maybe it's the political boundaries, like the county boundaries or the national boundaries. Well, each one of those represents something different that's going on in that place. Like the fact that we are today, where are we right now? Well, we are in the sanctuary of the Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church. And that says something about where we are, where you are sitting right now as you're listening to this. And that means something important. It means that you're here and you're in a place of worship. You're in a sacred place. Uh, but you're also in, you could say, you're also within the United States of America. What does that mean? It means that there are certain laws, there are certain uh, governing authorities that impact your life as you are here and present here. We also would say, coming into this place, that you are in the presence of, of God, that we come into the presence of God when we come into worship. So we're also referring to the spiritual reality. And all of those things are true at the same time, and they interact with each other. They're not independent, but they are uh, affecting you in all of these different ways. And so it is with the spiritual realm that we, in fact, don't just inhabit the material world, but God has created us with a spirit. And we, likewise, inhabit that spiritual 
realm as well. Fifth and, and, and last principle for laying the basic foundation is the victory that we have in Jesus. That the reign of Christ is the manifestation of, his, of God's victory over all spiritual forces in this world. Remember what we read before. All principality, all power, that he has been put above all these things. And it, it foretells and it prophesies his victory over everything. That it, that one that he is in fact working out in time right now as we speak. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks about the end of all things. It speaks about God's ultimate victory over every enemy. Every enemy. And that would, what, what would that include? What, what would every enemy include? Well, that would be, include people that are opposed to Jesus Christ and the purpose of God and opposed to God's people. That would include the devil. That would include the devil's angels. That would include any uh, demon or spiritual being that opposes itself against God. That would include everything. That would also include sin. And it would include death, even itself. And he will and has accomplished the victory over every enemy. And he is working out that victory in time in the kingdom of God on earth. Here's what it says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So he is reigning, and, and throughout his reign, he is going to defeat, throw down every enemy that opposes God, every enemy that opposes his kingdom, until the very end, and the final enemy he's going to overthrow is even death itself. Death itself will be defeated. And this will be the consummation of the work of Christ in his victory and his kingdom on earth. And that is... Uh, that is the preeminent thing of importance for us to understand in our spiritual warfare. That how will we have victory? Well, we will have victory as we participate in the victory of Christ. The victory that he has won. And so as we war against principalities and powers, we're not fighting on our own strength. We're not fighting on our own will. We're not going out there. Uh, thinking that we're going to do some great work for God and overthrowing his enemies. No, we are, we are living out the victory of Christ that he works out. And as he chooses to use us in that, he will do so. But it is only by his power, for the victory is his. As we sing, victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. And so, what are we up against then? What is Paul talking about? We wrestle... Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers. You know, that, that could seem pretty abstract to me. Am I supposed to walk through life thinking about uh, what, what, what demons or demonic forces are around the next door waiting for me to attack me? How, what, what are we up against? Well, Paul, as I said before, Paul isn't teaching anything uh, 
out of the line of what has been taught to us in the rest of Scripture. So let's consider for a moment what this spiritual wickedness in high places is. And what the weapons that the devil uses, the devil and his angels use against God's people to attempt to destroy and to overthrow us. The devil hates God's people. The devil hates mankind in general and wants to destroy him. And that was the case from the very beginning and why uh, he sought to bring Adam and Eve into sin so that they would incur the judgment of God upon them so that they would be destroyed, so that they would die. He wanted to destroy them. So what, what weapons does he use? Well, the first one may be obvious is, is the worship of devils itself. This and if you if you think perhaps you know it would seem strange that anybody would worship devils or worship demons, but this is in fact what's been going on throughout all of human history, and it manifests itself in what we call idolatry in the Bible. God had taught His people and He set them apart and He said, "You shall have no other gods before Me." And he said, you, you, you should not make a graven image of anything on earth or in heaven and bow down and worship it. Because he desires his people to worship God alone and not worship demons and false gods. And, um, and this is what idolatry is. Uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 20 to 21, where he's teaching the churches. He's teaching, you can't continue to participate in the, uh, in the pagan worship of your, of your culture that's opposed to the worship of the true God. You can't participate on uh, one day, come and eat at the Lord's table and partake of the Lord in, in, the, in the communion service and then go the next day and go and partake of the, of the sacrifices to the idols. So he, he says this, he says, But I say... That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Now when you, when you picture idolatry in your mind, you, you imagine someone, they carve an idol out of stone or wood or some other material. And it's just a dead piece of rock or a dead piece of wood. And they're bowing down and worshiping that. And they're worshiping something that's just created with their own hands and it has no life to it. And it's just a, an inanimate object. And they're worshiping that rather than God. And if that was all it was, that would of course be bad enough. That would be uh, the height of foolishness. But that isn't what the most, for the most part, the pagan worshipers of these idols believed that they were doing. They didn't think they were just that that rock that they carved was God, was their God. They believed that that rock that they carved was an image, a, a, a physical representation of their God. And they would then offer prayers. They would offer incantations and, and they would call for the spirit of their God to come and to inhabit that idol. See, what they were worshiping was not just a piece of stone. They were worshiping, what Paul says here, they were worshiping devils. They were offering their sacrifices to devils. 
And he's saying, you, you cannot have fellowship with God and with devils. He said, I would not that you should have fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And this is what he encourages them not to be partaking in these uh, in the false worship of idolatry. They could have nothing to do with it. And, and this was part of a means by which much of the persecution of Christians in the first century, how it came about. We, most of us know from history that Christians, early Christians, were heavily persecuted. Later on from this time period, they were heavily persecuted in the Roman Empire. And they were, many of them martyred, put to death for their faith. It was not because they worshipped a new god. You realize that in that empire, there was a multitude of gods that were worshipped. It was not because they had a new religion. It was not because they worshipped a different god from everybody else. It was because they claimed that their god was lord over all things, that he was the only god to be worshipped, and because they refused to participate in the worship of the false gods of the Roman Empire or any other gods. In fact, there were circumstances in which if they had just gone through the motions of offering the sacrifice to the pagan god, then they could have been spared from their death. And they refused to do it because they would not partake in the worship of devils and they would worship God alone as God had taught them. So, so the false worship of false gods, one of the tools that the devil would ensnare us with. Perhaps because he wants the worship from her, uh, for himself, or he wants us to incur the wrath and the judgment of God, and so entices us into that. Secondly, the devil and his angels, they use the enticements of the flesh to lure people into the worship of devils and into their own destruction. Particularly, sexual immorality and other enticements of the flesh are a means by which the devil will lure people into false worship. This is what the Apostle Paul pointed to in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 8. When he speaks about the Israelites in the wilderness and how the judgment of God came upon them for their idolatry and, their, and the lusts of their flesh. He says, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is referring back to the the time when Moses was in the mount receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he was up there, the people asked Aaron to make them a god. To make them, and he made the golden calf. And he made the golden calf, and they, all offer, they were offering sacrifices to the golden calf, saying, this is the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. But it, but it was not only that, they, they began to offer sacrifices and they began to feast and they began to commit sexual immorality. And so he goes on, he says, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. 
Or in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that that which he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. He's, he's uh, relating their spiritual service to God and how one who is a member of Christ, one who is joined to Christ, is exhorted to flee from all sexual immorality. You cannot take the, the members of Christ, the parts of Christ's body, and unite them to sexual immorality. He says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his whole body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. He, he points them to the reality of their existence. You're, if you belong to Christ, you are part of his body. God's Spirit dwells in you. You are, you are part of the temple of the Holy Spirit, the habitation of God through the Spirit. You are a, a stone in that house. You cannot take your body and unite it to sexual immorality. You don't belong to yourself. You are not your own. We certainly can't use the, the line, well, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. No, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. First of all, you're created by God to serve Him and not to serve your own pleasure. But secondly, if you are saved, if you are uh, redeemed by God and made part of His household, then you are not your own. You are bought with the price, the precious price of the, the, the death of the life and death of Jesus Christ upon the cross to redeem you to God. Therefore, he says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. Sexual immorality will always be a tool that seeks to destroy those that engage in it and bring them into the worship of false gods and turn them aside from, from the true God. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Another, a third tool, that weapon that the devil uses against God's people that, this, that these principalities and powers use is, is to entice people to meddle with spiritual evil or spiritual powers apart from God. And this, this, I'm talking about psychics, mediums, witches, spells, sorcery, things like tarot cards or seances or drugs, psychedelics, hallucinogenics, mushrooms. These things are intended for the purpose of interacting with the spiritual realm, but not on God's terms. Seeking to gain power or gain help from the spiritual realm, but not in the way that God has ordained or intended. And God strictly forbid His people from participating in this from the beginning. In Deuteronomy, He says... When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. 
There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Now, a lot of these things that that exist, a lot of them are are, um, frauds or deceptions. But really, that's the best case. The Bible doesn't warn us against those and say, don't participate in that just because it's all a fraud, because it's all fake. But if we believe what everything that we've seen so far in this message, that the spiritual realm is, is real, and not all of it is operating on the side of God, but some of it is opposed to God and fighting against God and God's people, then we ought to beware of meddling with the spiritual realm in any way apart from the means that God has given us and called us to. This is why he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not uh, have among you sorcerers and and wizards and and mediums trying to communicate with the dead or, or any of these things apart from seeking after the Lord our God, seeking to Him and worshiping Him alone. Not even worshiping the, the, the good angels either. This was something that the Jews in the time that Paul and others were writing, some of them were, were getting caught up in this. They weren't necessarily worshiping evil devils or demons, but they became fascinated with, the, uh, with angels and they were worshiping angels. And this likewise... Even the angels themselves always rebuked anyone who tried to worship them and give them worship rather than to God. And so we ought to avoid these things. And then, and then uh, lastly, as far as the weapons that are used against us, deceptive philosophies and ideologies, or by the more simple term, lies. The devil deals in lies. This is his principal weapon, to deceive. But lies, is, lies I think we often just think of as a very simple term. A lie is if I say, um, you know, I did this and I actually didn't do that, I did this. But, but the lies of the devil are very sophisticated many times. They're very sophisticated and they're very enticing. They're very attractive. They're designed to overthrow us. They're designed to entice people into them. This was how it worked from the very beginning. God had said, don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And the devil lied about what God said. The devil said, you won't surely die. So he contradicted God, of course. But then he also made the lie very enticing. He says, if you eat of it, you'll become wise. If you eat of it, you'll become like gods, knowing good and evil. You'll become greater than you are. It will be pleasurable. It will be, uh, in fact, God God is trying to hold you back from something that is for your good. God is trying to hold you back from something that will give you pleasure. God is trying to hold you back from something that will allow you to lead the fulfilling existence that you desire. 
And this is the nature of the devil's works. But Jesus said, he's a liar from the beginning, he's a murderer from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. His goal is to destroy, but his presentation is one that is designed to be enticing and attractive. And so it is with any system of thought, any system of thought, any philosophy, any system of education, any system of of, uh, ideology, whose ultimate end is to turn people away from serving and worshiping the true God. Ultimately, anything like that is a lie. Jesus said to... The, in fact, highly religious people of his day, many of the leaders of the, of the religious people of his day among the Jews, he said, he said, if God were your father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. So he relates those that wanted to destroy him, that didn't believe his word. He relates them as being of their father, the devil. Because like them, they dealt, like him, they dealt in lies and deceptions. And the ultimate end of those things was murder, was, was murder and destruction. It was the murder of Jesus himself. That's what they wanted to do, and that's what they got in the end. Even though their system of thought and their, their conception of themselves was one that they saw themselves as righteous. They saw themselves as in line with God, but in fact they were opposed. And so, lies and deceptions idolatry, false religions, any philosophy that all, that doesn't that turns people away ultimately from God. So, lastly, we with the last few minutes we have, how do how do you fight back against this? I mean, the assaults of evil are 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 pretty strong, but the weapons that we have are stronger. The assault against us is is many. You know, when Elisha was surrounded, there were, there were chariots. They, 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 this was Elisha and his servant. And they sent a massive army to assault them. And sometimes you might feel like, here you are, trying to serve God, trying to live your life, and you are assaulted. You are up against what? Principalities? Powers? Spiritual wickedness in high places? You're up against the enticing temptations of this world? To, to sin and immorality. You're up against spiritual wickedness in high places. You're up against the deceptive philosophies of this world that, that uh, ens- enslave multitudes of people in them and make it difficult to live and to operate and to serve God in this life. You're up against all that. And it might seem like you're just like Elisha and his servant, two guys, and you're surrounded by an army of chariots. But what we have on our side is greater than everything that we're up against. Paul doesn't say this so that you would be afraid. He says it so that you would be emboldened and and, and ready, ready to gird your loins up to fight 
in that spiritual battle and have victory in it by the power of God. All power. We have, first of all, we fight back by acknowledging, living, and teaching the authority of Christ over all things. This is why I say it's ultimately it's normal, basic discipleship. But we have to live that out with commitment and with zeal to do it. Jesus, at the end of his ministry on earth, he called his disciples together. And he expressed to them his authority over all things. The very thing we were talking about from Ephesians. But in Matthew 28, he, he says this in, in a slightly different way. He says, all power is given me in heaven and on earth. All power is given. He has it all. It might not seem like it to the natural eye. Or as it says in Hebrews, uh, even though all things are put under his feet, it says, yet we see not all things yet put under him, but we see Jesus. So we see him. And we can have confidence that he will have that victory. But how does he, how does he work that victory out in the world? He, he calls them all. He says... All power is given me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. He says, teach them to observe. Make disciples and teach them to observe all the things that I have taught you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the world. So he teaches them. How do we fight back? We serve Christ rather than this world. We serve Jesus rather than the devil. We obey him. And we teach others to do the same. And in that we we have victory. Second, we pray. He says, pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching them thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. If we know how great the enemy, how, how powerful the enemy that we're up against is, it ought to spur us to pray, not just for ourselves that we would have victory, but think about what your brother and your sister are up against in this world. Pray for them. Pray for all saints. And pray for those that preach the word. Pray for, as Paul asked for them to pray for him, pray for those that preach the word. And we have Jesus' example in this. Jesus himself was always going apart to pray, to take that time to pray. Third, we have the Bible, the word of God. This is, in fact, what Jesus' example himself was, that he used as a weapon against the temptations of the devil. It is written. It is written. It is written. There's no, there's no clear uh, weapon that you have against the lies of this world and of the devil and the deceptive philosophies than to come back to the word of God, the truth of God, and wield that as a sword. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then last, reliance on the truth of the gospel and on Jesus Christ and His victory. We have victory because of His victory. We can, we can win only because of what He has done. And when you, when you look, I, I did not go through the elements of the armor here. And I think we heard a, a, an excellent sermon on that earlier this summer from one of the visiting preachers. So we didn't go through the details of all of the armor and the different aspects of the tools that God has equipped us with. But I will point out one thing about all these things. All of them come back to Jesus Christ. 
Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. He is called Christ our righteousness. The shield of faith. He is the object of our faith. He is who we trust in. Each of these things. Having your loins girt about with truth. Well, he is called the way, the truth, and the life. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so, fighting our spiritual warfare, it's not ultimately different from our normal path of Christian discipleship. But it is in fact the passionate, thoughtful, committed, and diligent service to God through the means that He has given us to operate in this world to fight and to overcome the spiritual wickedness in high places. Take, he says, the whole armor of God. And he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let us pray. Our dear God, we pray. We pray for your strength, your wisdom, your guidance, and your power to overcome everything that opposes you and opposes your people in this world. God, we acknowledge that we are not fighting this battle alone, but we war by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rest and we trust and we depend upon what he has accomplished and his victory over all things. We, We trust you, God, that you have accomplish victory over all of your enemies and you are working out that victory in this world, victory over every enemy, even the last enemy, death itself. We thank you for that victory. I pray for this congregation in the week to come and the weeks ahead. God, that you would guide each one of us, that you would give us strength, wisdom, and the power of Christ in our lives to overcome temptation and to serve you in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.